took unpaid leave from this job to write the first version of the script mm-hmm. and when he came back um, his superiors had found out and when they saw that teaser they immediately fired him that's absolutely crazy it's it's ludicrous and and i was so mad i was so mad they just saw a, a violent unfunny uh, nazi that's what it is. <laughs> They thought this was actually serious. It's hard to believe, you know, when you watch the teaser. I mean, how can you think that this is not supposed to be funny? <laughs> mm, I love the smell of cheese in the morning. But I am a lactose intolerant. You filthy foreign. Now I'm working on a project called Mad Heidi and we have developed, I would say, nothing less than a revolutionary method to finance, produce and distribute uh, this film. And yeah, maybe that's that's enough uh, for a teaser. We'll talk about it later. And there's the blockchain involved there. There's the blockchain involved. Hello and welcome to Unforkable. The podcast that brings you juicy stories straight from the blockchain. My name is Jonas and today on the show, how a bunch of filmmakers flipped the script on how to finance, produce and distribute movies. And yes, there's the blockchain involved. Well, at least sort of. And Heidi. My guest today is the film producer Valentin Greutert. Valentin might be most known for his latest movie, Paradise War, the story of Bruno Manser. During his career, Valentin has produced over 20 movies for TV and the big screen. Today he will lift the curtain on the economics of movie making in Europe, we discuss the future of filmmaking and zoom in his latest project, Mad Heidi, an exploitation movie that is only possible due to fans and investors from all over the globe who chip in to make this movie a reality. So grab your popcorn and let's start the show. Why did I become a film producer? And I don't have an answer, but I, that's what I am now. But do you remember like the, the, the first moment when you had this idea? No, I, I mean, when I was 14, I wanted to become a film actor. And then when I was 16, I wanted to become a film director. And then I started making a movie with the VHS camera and stuff and friends. And I think at some point I just realized that I'm better at helping people mm do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. You have a master in economics and mm-hmm. business administration mm-hmm. and you've produced over 20 movies. Mm-hmm. Among them, the first and probably only Swiss 3D horror movie. I think there's only one other European and English 3D horror movie. But apart from that, uh, One Way Trip is really the only one. And we started working on this film and decided to make it 3D just before Avatar came out. So it was really pioneering work. The, the 3D technology really made a, a big leap and that made it very interesting for us to work with that technology. At the time, it was just a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, you need a stereo rig with two cameras and a mirror in between. So you can move these cameras and, and decide on the stereo effect you want. Just changing the lens once took an hour, while usually it takes like three minutes. (laughs) Yeah. But it was very much fun also because we shot six weeks only at night. Mm -hmm. And you have this total switch from 
you sleep in the day and you're <laughs> up in the night. I mean, I have never done that for such a long time. Usually you have a couple of shooting days at night, but never over such a long period. And, mm. uh, and all the movie was practically shot outdoors. So, so also that was very interesting, uh, just to be in the woods all night, all, every day. And uh, big challenge. So maybe a step back now to um, being a film producer. I mean, everybody knows what is an actor. Most people even know uh, what a director does. But what is a film producer doing? Well, it's, it's always hard to explain because there isn't really a definition. Okay, the producer is the guy who somehow organizes the money mm -hmm. and who is the entrepreneur. The rights to the film belong to the production company. And that's where it stops. Because every producer has a different way of, of working. You know, how much do you get involved in development? How much are you involved on the set? I mean, are you present? Most producers are not present on the set. You know, they stay in their office. They just have hired their crew and, and the director mm -hmm. shoots that movie. Mm -hmm. So there is no clear definition except for... He has to get the money on the table somehow. Mm -hmm. um, when I make a movie, I have to do it with everything I have. I have to be present on the set every day. I need to see what's happening because if I'm not there and they just do something and after that I see it and I'm not happy, I, I cannot take re responsibility. You know, I want to know what's happening. I, I want to be involved. I also want to be able to, to tell the director, hey, are you sure you, you should do it this way? Maybe try it a little more this way because I have developed the story the script with the director I have gone through all the casting process and stuff so um, for me it's really uh, an all-in thing I have to do it with all my flesh and blood mm. uh, otherwise it's it's not making me happy otherwise I can go sell toothpaste or something you know it's uh, um, the creative process of movie making is something very important to me so you are there on the set and you said you're involved in the movie, in the story, in the plot. It sounds like you're the director to me. No, 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 no. I'm not, for example, you know, the, the work relationship with the director is very, very important. And I have had projects, you know, you, you get to know someone, you, you start working, everything is easy. And then come the problems, you know, when you, when you start shooting, when there is not enough money, constraints you have in the production. And it happened to me that, that uh, you know, I did not get along with the director anymore. And that makes it very difficult because when you make a movie, you're in the same boat with the director for two, three, four, five years. The development of the script is easy two or three years. And the financing, the production, then the post-production. And if you stop getting along with the director during the production, you, you have to keep on working with the person for another one or two years. And that makes it very difficult. So this base of trust between the producer and director, for me personally, it's very important. For example, when I did um, my last movie, the Bruno Manser, or Paradise Wars, the English title, mm -hmm. When I met Niklaus, who directed it and wrote it, I said to him, look, before I'm going to make this movie with you, I need to make two other movies. Because I'm not going to go to Borneo for half a year <laughs> in the jungles and, and, and try to shoot a movie, because we need to make sure that we will get along, even if we have conflicts. So wait, you said to the director, 
before we do this huge project, yes, we do two smaller movies, movies. Yeah. two smaller movies. Yeah. How long did that take? Um, I mean, the, the, this whole project took took ten years to make, and it took like five years to make these other movies. Wow. Okay, that's quite a commitment. <laughs> yeah, it's a commitment, but but you know, when the work relation is good. I mean, you want to continue it. And this has been a very good collaboration. So it, it was absolutely normal that we would go on and go on. Mm -hmm. But this trust relationship is, is something fundamentally important. Also, you have to imagine that a director is a very lonely person in the sense that, you know, when you shoot a movie, you have so many decisions to take every day. You only have this one day where you shoot this one scene, mm -hmm. you're not going to come back here and reshoot it. You, mm -hmm. you, you just have to shoot it then. And at that point, mm -hmm. there are so many factors and decisions to take. The, the director doesn't have any friends in that, you know, because nobody, you know, they're just technicians. They're there and they're mm -hmm. engaged and everything, but they don't have the bigger picture. They didn't go through the development. They didn't have so many discussions about what this movie should be. They, they don't talk about distribution. These are all things that the producer is here for, you know. So, mm. so I consider myself in a good way also like as the best friend of the director, the backdrop, you know, mm -hmm. not by interfering with his decisions, but by supporting them, by shaping them, by discussing about them. Mm. And this is a way uh, of trying to make the best film possible. Now, going a little bit deeper into that financial aspect, because I think that's very interesting. We are sitting here in Switzerland, just for the audience. We have like around 8 million people, but four different languages. So it's quite a fragmented market, like a tiny little market. And I guess a lot of films that are produced in Switzerland, they are surviving and only um, possible due to financing from the state and organizations that want to see the Swiss film culture prosper and stuff like that. Do you have a view? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, but this doesn't only concern Switzerland. It, it's in, in the whole of Europe. Uh, but film is, I would just say, 90-95% financed through subsidies, except for, for the UK, because they are very focused on the US market. And it's a very complicated system. Let's just take the example of the Zurich Filmstiftung. You know, you can apply there to, to get uh, your movie subsidized. Mm -hmm. Only a small fraction of it. I eventually, you will need like 10, 15, 20 different sources of financing to make your budget. So let's say we want 100,000 francs from the Zurich Filmstiftung. They will want us to spend 150,000 in the canton of Zurich. They call it an economic spending effect. You know, mm -hmm. so, so that's how they justify the subsidies for the politics. That's the argument, you know. We only give 100k, but we will get back 150k. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and now you have to imagine that you have 10, 15 sources like that uh, to finance your movie. And each of them has their own regulations, you know, which mostly means you have to spend the money where it comes from. And also, what kind of movies will get through by all these boards. I mean, usually maybe not the most provocative or most entertaining movies. Maybe they have to have like a certain educational aspect or yeah. stuff like that as well, right? Like you have so many decision makers that maybe spoil a little bit the soup. 
Exactly. I mean, polemically, you could say this system produces the local social drama, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that doesn't travel really, that, you know, describes some problem that happens uh, in, in a specific area, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's most of the films that are being produced in, in, in Europe. Um, because uh, you're not allowed to just uh, say, okay, you know what, I want to shoot this movie in English. <laughs> you know, th- there's all these constraints. There are like point systems, you know, and you say, okay, the sound guy is from Germany. Okay, one point. Uh, the composer is from Switzerland. Okay, two points, you know, and, and that's how the system works, yeah. you know, uh, because, because it's so heavily subsidized. You know, you also have to understand the other side, you know, I mean, why should the state put money into movies, you know? Mm. Obviously, they say, hmm, if we put tax money into a movie, we also want to make sure that people from our country are hired. Mm. There's two sides to it. But bottom line is the system that we currently have, A, requires too many different financing parties, which, you know, you need you need a year one and a half or even longer, two years to finance a bigger film within this system because mm. you have to submit one after another and, and then mm. slowly collect all the money. And that's just not uh, very entrepreneur friendly, I would say. We, we don't like to to brag about what we have achieved, right? It's, it's not in our culture. But if I give you now uh, this little challenge that you brag about what you have achieved with your movies, how would you do that? Like just bragging a little bit for a while. Well, as you know, I'm Swiss and, and it's, <laughs> it's very hard for me to do that. Um, you know, when you start out making movies, you think I'm better at it. I can do better movies than anybody else. They all don't know how it's working. And then, and then you kind of land in reality and you see that it's really, really hard to make, to make a, a, a good movie. You know, it happens to me that I see, you know, I, I turn on television and, and some movie of mine is being broadcasted and I'm like, what? That, I did that? How is that possible? <laughs> for example, this, in a positive way or like in a positive, in a positive way. way? Okay, for, good. For example, we shot that movie Rocksteady: The Roots of Reggae. It's a movie about the Rocksteady era, uh, mm-hmm. which was at the end of the '60s. After that, it was called ro- uh, Reggae, and and we gathered all the the musicians who were big, the stars at the end of the '60s. We gathered them from all around the world and brought them to Kingston and re-recorded an album with them in the Studio One, in Bob Marley's Studio One. And I, I still today, I, I wonder how I managed to get this done. <laughs> because it's kind of far-fetched, you know. Yeah. And the same is with this uh, Bruno Manser movie. I mean, we, we shot this film with indigenous people in, in the middle of the jungles of Borneo. And mm. with, how did we manage you know you don't speak their language and there is no infrastructure there's fucking nothing there you know and we needed logging companies to help us even though it's an anti-logging film and, and <laughs> everything was so complex and when i uh, look at this movie now I, i'm like how is it possible that i did this <laughs> <laughs> is, is that also maybe the most expensive swiss film of all times could that be well some people have said that but actually i don't know and for me it's not an important mm. uh, you know uh, metric uh, yeah. metrics uh, uh, i think um but yeah. it's one of the biggest productions uh, in it's, switzerland it's certainly the 
I think nobody ever dared to do something like that in Switzerland. But I think even to international mm -hmm. standards, I think what we did there uh, is really impressive. I mm -hmm. mean, we took indigenous people from Borneo and shot that movie uh, and it, we shot on three continents. We had 76 shooting days, which is very, very long for a European film. And it was a massive, massive operation. And mm. I'm, I'm very, very proud of, uh, about this film also. This movie, uh, it's about Bruno Manser, and he was like this activist and environmentalist from Switzerland who went to Malaysia and lived with those tribes, right? And then kind of started to fight against uh, deforestation, deforestation, etc. Um, but from what I've seen from the movie, you also try to make it um, in a way that it's entertaining that is kind of like a blockbuster feel to it. Yeah. But some people also have criticized that afterwards. How did that feel for you? Because... Oh, I, I, this never got to me, this kind of criticism, because this is a historical figure. So this guy existed, and there are documentaries on him. There are books about him. If you want that, then go read those books and look at those documentaries. Mm. We tried to, to compress this story into something that makes it available for a larger audience, you know, that it doesn't have this this um, small feeling, this documentary feeling. It's an important subject. The, the core of this film is really the story of the origin of mankind. I mean, that's what, what Bruno Manso was looking for. He was looking for the most original lifestyle of humans that was still available on the planet. And those were those forest nomads. They don't have possession they don't own land you know they just roam around the forest and and take what the forest gives them and and mm -hmm. you know to to oppose that with with the deforestation which is the hunger of a capitalist society you know the economy needs those resources you know and the clash of those two uh, ideas like the most original form of being without possession and and capitalism and that clash that's what we were trying to show in this movie, what's happening there. And in that context, when you make a movie like this, you have to make a big... Uh, I'm very convinced of that. And, and that's why this kind of criticism never, never touched me. Mm -hmm. And how much did it cost to produce this movie? Like... This movie was six million Swiss francs. Okay. And it was only that cheap because uh, in Borneo... <laughs> It's cheaper. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's shoot. a third world. There mm. is nothing there, you know, where we shot. I mean, we've shot in areas there is not even, you, you cannot even use your phone. Mm -hmm. there, there's nothing. We, we had a walkie-talkie production, which, you know, mm -hmm. there, there, there was no email, nothing. You know, we, we couldn't even rent cars. Our team had to go out on the street and ask people if we could have their car for two or three months, you know, because what? there was nothing. Really? There was okay. nothing. We built a huge camp for a hundred people in the forest because the, it was too far away from anywhere we could stay in a house. So we had to build this camp and, and, and it, it was really a crazy production. Crazy, crazy. Have you ever been inspired? Because that, that reminds me of, uh, what was the German guy? Um, Werner Herzog. Yeah, also, Werner Herzog. Yeah. Were you inspired by this story? Where they also I mean, pulled of, that boat over? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, of course, you, you look at that. And, but the difference with this project is that, you know, these people are really affected by the problem. I mean, mm. Werner Herzog, he just shot a fictional story we shot a story that's actually happening and still happening these people who you see in the movie 
they are affected by this deforestation. So there was an emotional value for them in telling this story, which is completely different to a completely fictional story. Mm -hmm. So that was a very important uh, motivator for everybody to to work on this, Mm -hmm. to go through all these difficulties. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not so easy to make a movie over there. And now, given that this was a a big success, right? It's one Mm -hmm. of the biggest movies you've shot. Just to put in numbers again, how much did that movie earn back, you know? Like, what are the... I'm interested in the economics of movie making. Yeah, uh, it's still ongoing mm-hmm. because the movie is selling. It was just coming out in Germany and it was supposed to come out in, in Austria. Obviously, now through COVID, <laughs> this will all get delayed. Mm-hmm. But I can say the movie has brought back, in Switzerland alone, about 20% of the cost. Mm-hmm. That's uh, very good, very good for this small country. Okay. Do do you think it will be a, a financial success in terms of breaking even or even that's that's going hard above to that? tell at this point. You know, we're we're still in the race for the Golden Globes, and if we get a Golden Globe nomination, then I think this might well happen. The the pandemic has a mighty impact on films currently. You know, because there is mm. just no distribution going on. I mean. Like traditional, uh, you, you're talking about cinemas and yes, this kind of distribution, yes, right? Yes, yeah. but you know, in today's world, the festivals and theatrical distribution is still the cornerstone of things for a movie like this. You know, mm-hmm. you need to get to get some visibility. And it was going very well in Germany. We, we were running for one week in Germany and we were in the charts on, on place seven, which is very good. But the impact of the pandemic is disastrous on that. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to make an estimation if we're going to break even or not. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good segue into Matt Heidi. Matt Heidi is a very different movie from the one we just talked about. Absolutely. Do you maybe just want to give a quick uh, overview of what my, Matt Heidi is about? Yeah, so Matt Heidi is building on the Heidi brand, probably the biggest brand of Switzerland. The, the book has been sold over 50 million times around the globe. It's very, very big in Japan. Tons of series and movies have been made about it. So mm. um, Matt Heidi is, is based on, on Heidi, but Heidi is now grown up. She's a young woman. And she lives in a dystopian Switzerland, which is ruled by a dictator who owns a cheese empire. And he managed to create a cheese with a very high lactose degree. And by feeding that to the population, they become obedient. And then Goat Peter, Heidi's boyfriend, gets killed and Heidi gets abducted. And she's being turned into a fighter. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to continue more uh, on the story, but in any case, she has to make her way and learn how to liberate uh, Switzerland and give freedom back to the people. So it's a very uh, a trashy movie. Can, you can say that, right? Without yeah, being it's offended. Yeah, in a positive, in a positive yeah. way. It's a, it's an exploitation film. Exploitation, and you call it Swiss exploitation. Swiss exploitation. Yes. And talking about uh, 
just quick side question. What about the brand of Heidi? Is that kind of expired and yeah, everybody yeah, can expired. take it? The, the original book was written in 1871, I think. So everybody can use now the Heidi yeah. brand for yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. And what, what's an exploitation movie exactly? What is I the mean, characteristics ex- of that? Exploitation movies are generally building on cliches and bring them to an extreme. I mean, most exploitation movies are very graphical, but to a degree where everybody realizes, okay, it's over the top. And I think today's most known exploitation film director is Quentin Tarantino. But the genre was very big in the 60s and 70s, and there have been many deviations like black exploitation, non-exploitation, and, and, and now we're doing no, su- nuns. Non, non-exploitation. Like, like nuns that shoot around yeah, and yeah, kill nuns people. Yeah, that do stuff. That's their own genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah there's, That's interesting. There's, there's plenty of... You can you can ploitate everything. everything. Okay. Know? So we do Swiss ploitation, which means we're making fun of Swiss cliches, like mm-hmm. Heidi, like cheese, like mountains, and, and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film is actually so controversial that one of the writers of the movies lost his job over it. Yeah, he worked for the security department for the Cantonal Police of Zurich at the airport. He's not a policeman, though. He's like a civilian working for the airport security. He's one of the guys uh, who, who checks your uh, luggage, luggage yeah. uh, when you want to uh, jump on a plane. And um, he took unpaid leave from this job to write the first version of the script mm-hmm. and when he came back um, his superiors had seen the, the teaser to this mm-hmm. film to which he wasn't even involved but when they saw that teaser they immediately fired him that's absolutely crazy it's it's ludicrous and and i was so mad i was so mad mm-hmm. i mean the whole process how that happened you know it's so amateurish i mean i mean they wouldn't even they wouldn't even listen to the guy you know they weren't even interested in what he had to say you know they they wouldn't be interested in in the, they just saw a, a violent unfunny uh, nazi movie that's what they said you know <laughs> Yeah, they thought this was actually serious. <laughs> what really? It's hard to believe, you know, when you watch the teaser. I mean, how can you think that this is not supposed to be funny? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they didn't think so, and they fired him. And we, uh, on the other hand, we immediately engaged our fan base and collected ten thousand francs for him to pay for the lawyer. Because mm. the the joke is, if you get fired without notice, you are not allowed to get unemployment money. You know, oh, really? You're not, you, you won't get any un- unemployment money for one month because, oh. because you were fired without notice, you know. Which is a particular grave reason usually exactly. why you get fired, you've so, done something really bad. So this guy has a family with two kids. He was going on a small salary anyway, so he has a huge problem. He could yeah. never have paid for the lawyer. And now it took almost 18 months. And in February, the cantonal court had decided that this was so unlawful what they did. But the police did not accept the verdict. And they went to Supreme Court. So we had to wait another six months, seven months now. That's absolutely crazy. It's a scandal. You can't believe it. And, you know, again, they lost now because also the Supreme Court says, wait a minute, (laughs) you can't do that. Is the verdict in then? Yeah, yeah, it's in now. And now it it went back to the other court because they didn't define the sum that he will get because Mm -hmm. obviously they will have to pay money. And we're waiting now for that court to decide how much money he gets. 
for this movie, you engage a lot with the audience. Such a case, could that also be helpful for the movie even? Of course. I mean, for us, it was good that that happened because it gave us visibility. We came into the press and that certainly helped from that point of view. But still, it's not what you're looking for. You know, I mean, then you make the best out of it. But now we're in 2020. And <laughs> for me, it's shameful to see that the police in this uh, area has a mindset of the 1980s okay and how, how did that uh, movie come about i mean it seems to be a very different movie from the ones you've done before mm -hmm. i have always been interested in original stuff yeah so man heidi started out as a poster you know we just had a poster and and johannes the director um, he just put that poster on facebook and it gained inexplicable traction you know uh, and we, we we suddenly saw that there is There is, there is demand for something like this. And, mm -hmm. and uh, then we said, uh, okay, here, take this money. Let's, let's do a teaser. Let's just shoot a teaser, you know, to see what comes out. And, and then, you know, the teaser that, uh, that you can now see is, uh, is the result of that. And then we said, okay, let's launch a crowdfunding campaign. And then with the money, we started developing the script uh, properly. And, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the project kind of got bigger and bigger. We, we have more than 2,700 people from 46 countries who bought stuff on, on the Mad Heidi webpage. Imagine that. We have a turnover of over 270,000 francs just wow. from people buying stuff. And there is not more than this teaser, yeah. which is a very fascinating thing. So, so uh, th this project just growed on us um, it's like really bottom up is like exactly the opposite of how you do the movies otherwise where you go yes exactly to someone and they have to give the okay and give the money and here uh, not only that not only that it's also uh, upside down in the sense of you start with marketing yeah and nothing else you know usually you make a movie and when the movie is finished and you have a release date, then you start the marketing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We started the marketing before we even had a, a, a script. Yeah. You know, and that made us realize, oh, there is demand. People want to see something like that. And, mm -hmm. and that's what made us continue and continue. And eventually developed this Mad Invest system that makes crowd investing possible for the first time with a high number of investors. You know, you can do crowd investing. If you have 20 investors, it's no problem. But if you have hundreds, you need a system that kills the administration. Mm -hmm. We're going to deep dive into that afterwards. I would just to quickly make sure that we understand the difference between... You mentioned you had a crowdfunding campaign and mm -hmm. now you have a crowd investing campaign. Yes. Um, can you quickly lay out what is the difference with, between so, the two? Yeah, it's an extremely important difference because, uh, and most people actually don't really understand it, but when you crowdfund something, people more or less donate money. You know, they will get something in return. They might get a t-shirt or they might get a DVD mm -hmm. or something, but it's essentially a non-monetary value they get. They are not investing in the sense that they are actually participating in the revenue and this is where crowd investing comes in uh, which is a whole different game because you can expect to get your money back you know depending on how it goes you won't get all money back or you might get a, a multiple of, of your money back that's actually one of the reasons 
uh, one of the things that drove me personally to crypto because I, I was very in, interested in crowdfunding, even wrote my master thesis about crowdfunding back in the days. And I was disappointed because I've seen like projects that have grown only with people who crowdfunded them. For instance, Oculus Rift is VR headset selling years later for two billion to Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and the people who bought that shitty product, which was not yet fully developed, have seen nothing for that, right? Mm -hmm. And crypto is so interesting to me because it's permissionless. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to ask. Everybody can contribute. And I wonder, um, how is this now with the platform you're using is FilmChain mm -hmm. and they're using somehow the blockchain in it. Can you describe, uh, is that also permissionless? Could an American, for instance, because they usually have high uh, hurdles to enter in all kinds of investing sh schemes. Could an, in an American invest in Unf MadID? Unfortunately, they cannot officially. Uh, because the SEC forbids any kind of crowd um, investing in that form. And our lawyer said uh, that uh, Americans cannot invest. But mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it depends on, on the amount because the SEC did not have projects like ours in their mind, but they had the big scams where people invest in millions and, mm -hmm. and it just evaporated uh, and stuff. So yes, we, we are working with this company called FilmChain and they are actually a, a collecting agent. They collect revenue for films and distribute it to the parties in the waterfall. The waterfall being kind of the distribution of the money. The distribution of the revenue, yeah. 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 And they are doing this based on blockchain, which means it's a private blockchain and they get the documents from the producers and then they create a smart contract out of it and all the money that comes in is distributed to the parties that uh, are eligible. There is no crypto involved. That means we are just using the blockchain to secure uh, the Excel sheet, if you want. <laughs> because, you know, it, it eventually, you know, you could use an Excel sheet for that. But the problem is somebody could, could you know, mistype something or, or just change something and then it's not mm. safe, you know. Um, and this system allows us to handle hundreds and hundreds of investors without having to send around paper. The investors can go on their account and transparently see where's the money coming from and what's my share and they can withdraw the money from their mm -hmm. wallet. Mm -hmm. So if they invest with Mad Invest, they don't get any cryptographic token mm -hmm. and they can also not pay with crypto. They can pay with crypto through Coinbase, but the investment mm -hmm. will be recorded in fiat money in Swiss mm -hmm. francs. So uh, is that platform the only kind of like partner who can collect this money or who is collecting the money? Are they collecting the money? Are you collecting the money, sending it over to them? No, or? they are collecting. We will also get the money from them. Yeah. You know, usually... This is how it happens. As a production company, I get all the money mm -hmm. and I have to send it on to the investors. Yeah, yeah. This is where terms like Hollywood accounting come in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that term. Is that something? That's <laughs> uh, something you can, it's even on Hollywood. Wikipedia. It's called Hollywood accounting. It, I think the most famous example is, is that Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings movies, never, never saw a dime from <laughs> Lord of the Rings. <laughs> from Lord of the Rings. 
because of Hollywood accounting. Wow. And, 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 you know, because the, the thing is, you cannot control it. You know, imagine you're an investor and there's some producer somewhere and, they, you know, they send you a bunch of paper mm -hmm. and, and there's some numbers on it. How, how do you want to control that? You know, how, how do you want to make sure it's, it's a, true or not? Yeah. It's, it's, it's prohibitive. You, 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 you can't. And this is why the collecting agent is so important. And, and it, this is why it's so important that, that the investors always can go check and see, okay, 10,000 from there, 70,000 from there. And they just see where it's coming from. And it's a third party. And mm -hmm. also the producers, the filmmakers are being paid through the same platform. And that provides a, a form of security in a crowd investing scheme that I think is absolutely uh, important. Moreover, you have to see that it wouldn't be possible for us anyway. I mean, we could not handle a thousand investors. Imagine you have to make a thousand bank transfers to, to pay out. To uh, I mean, the, the, you need to use a platform for that. Yeah, exactly. For sure. But I, um, I think it's very good what you're doing. And especially now you also gave me a little bit the background with this Hollywood accounting and what uh, the movie the industry has to grapple with, right? Mm. Uh, to be honest, from the crypto point of view, there's like this saying in the crypto space, like uh, a blockchain is just, you know, like an expensive database. And from what I understand, you don't really need the blockchain for what you're doing. Because, I mean, it's like uh, Airbnb or Uber or whatever. It doesn't matter what the database is. That You need to have the trust that the money goes in and you need transparency, but I mean, it's not like it's, programmable money. The fiat is not programmed as a smart contract. It, only crypto can be uh, programmable money. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I know what you mean. As a purist, you're absolutely right. We could do this with an Excel sheet. We could. Hmm. But uh, I think if you're one in a thousand investors, you, you can still think, oh, but who's, con who's making sure that nobody pampers around with that Excel sheet, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that the waterfall is being tokenized and it cannot be changed by anyone, you know, provides an additional degree of security, but it could be done in other ways as well. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. So you, it's still on, it's still running. You have a certain time limit. You want yes. to achieve this goal in 46 days or seven, something like that. Um, currently, you have around 400,000. Um, yeah. And the goal is 1 million, correct? The, the minimum goal, the soft goal is, is 1, the soft cap is 1 million. Uh, we can prolong the thing un until end of April. I must say that the pandemic is also limiting us uh, a little bit because, you know, many people have, have financial worries also. It can't be underestimated. And also we, we can't do in-person events, which uh, has always been something important for us uh, to communicate with the fans and stuff. So, um, yeah, but it's only a question of time because we will find all these people. How do you do that? How do you find all these people? Well, on, on one hand, it's, it's of course communicating with the fans, uh, bringing out new stuff on social media and all that. That works very well. Then there is the traditional media, hmm. which is uh, more difficult, I have to say. We're wor working hard on it and it, it just takes time because also the pandemic, you know, everything else becomes unimportant. Then we have the issue that some traditional media think, but this is promo. We don't do that, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you have the Matt Heidi is what it is. 
you have seen the teaser you know not everybody wants to <laughs> people get like fired that. over <laughs> it yeah <laughs> so and the third thing is ads you have to spend money to make money and we're experimenting with uh, different kinds of ads uh, yeah and actually i've seen the ads and that's why it came to my mind actually it was an ad on linkedin and it said something with blockchain and film investing i was like oh that sounds interesting <laughs> Because I've heard about Matt Hardy before, I think at the crowdfunding stage. Mm -hmm. And now, years later, that's when he popped up again on my screen. Yeah, from my master thesis, not for crowd investing, but for crowdfunding, uh, I've seen in the beginning you have a lot and then at the end. So now you are in the... In the low phase. In yeah. the low yeah, phase, yeah. 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 yeah you yeah. need that pressure at the end and people will uh, jump on it again. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing to go through a campaign like that because you really go through all the stages of feeling high, feeling low. Feeling... Mm -hmm. It's like a political campaign, you know. You just have to try out things and see if it works, see if it doesn't work and then change strategy, be very agile and just try to find your yeah. way. And, yeah. uh, and when you see how the fans react, you know, uh, how much they can give you back uh, when they can participate and stuff it's very very interesting especially i mean i come from filmmaking it's it's my normal job but i never had this kind of connection with the fans and it's um really very different from normal filmmaking this kind of fan-powered entertainment uh, fan-powered in many ways fan-powered by they give ideas they are part of it some of them have read the script and, and gave input and developed a project with the mm -hmm. fans that's something very different very different from usual filmmaking yeah. yeah it's really the fan base that is doing a lot of the work it seems also with promoting and but um as you said it's crowd investing can you do like the case for hey this is also a good investment i mean i've seen some of the numbers but what would be case where you say look i really believe that this can be a good investment in terms of yeah bringing I mean, back a multiple if an investor is in for the money i would say don't do it mm -hmm. simply because uh we're like a startup you know we're trying to do something and we're doing our best to make it a success but there is no guarantee and i, I always like to say this first because mm -hmm. it has to be very clear it's a high risk thing mm -hmm. what we can guarantee is that there's probably not been a more fun investment before <laughs> okay. because you really are part of a community and you, you you get all these insights into how a movie is made and you can invest yourself you know with your own ideas and stuff it's some kind of engagement you can never get with any other investment you have to like that aspect mm -hmm. then you know, I have seen so many revenue estimations from startup companies, from f movies, and they all fail. So we have decided not to create this like uh, worst uh, scenario, best scenario thing. But we have simplified this model and give a thinking to people how they can estimate the potential success of the project. Okay, we have a budget of 2.6 million how many sold streams do we need to break even? And if we imagine a price of 15 US dollars, it's like 280,000 or something, below 300,000. Of, of paid, uh, paid streams. streams. Yeah. Paid streams. And the closest reference we have to that is Iron Sky, the movie by my production partner. Mm -hmm. 
Tero Kaukoma, which was made in a similar way. Mm-hmm. He did this in 2010 when crowdfunding was really new. Yeah. And um, so Iron Sky had two million paid views. Two million paid views? Two million views. paid wow. views. And, you know, then you have, of course, the effect that the price goes down and the, the price might even vary between countries and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, so even if it takes in the end 600,000 to break even because the price is lower or something, I think if we manage to build up our community reasonably enough, we have a very good chance of actually breaking even uh, or even making profits Mm -hmm. for for the investors. Uh, But it's a startup and you never know. I mean, if anybody on this planet had the recipe to make successful movies, <laughs> then we would only have a successful movie. Um, the film market has a few elements that are very, very different from normal markets. For example, movies for the consumer always have the same price. You know, regardless uh, whether a movie costs 2 million or 200 million, if you go That's true, see no? a movie, you will pay the same price. And you couldn't imagine this for any other product. <laughs> At the same time, you cannot say that a movie that costs 200 million is going to be more successful than a movie that costs 2 million. It's also not sure. But it's just interesting to have this in your mind, you know, that regardless of the price of production, the end price is the same. And the producer has no influence on the end price. <laughs> you mean the price people pay for the product? Yes. You cannot set the price, yeah. How can you set the price? You can't set the price. The, the price is just a standard in the industry. You know, that's sure. just that's just how much they pay for a DVD. That's just how much they pay yeah. for a, a cinema ticket. Not even with the, the streaming, because it seems... The streaming also... is a bit more flexible. It's a bit mm-hmm. more flexible. But, you know, in, for example, Amazon, you cannot say, I want my price up there. They yeah. will start with it, but then they will take it down. Because oh. they don't want uh, the, the, such differences. And another uh, interesting thing is films are always prototypes. It's a prototype market. You know, in in a normal industry, you would start making a prototype of your product, then you would test it, give it to people, and then then you get the feedback. Then you go back, make prototype two, prototype three, prototype Mm -hmm. four, Mm -hmm. until after a few runs, you feel like you have a product that's ready for the market. When you make a film, you don't have that. You can't do it. You know, uh, when you shoot it, that's but, where it's made. But don't they have like at least in Hollywood uh, those tests, viewers, and then they do some changes if they, people don't laugh yes, at the right yeah, spot? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, that you can do. You can do test screenings and then say, oh, okay, we need to edit here and there a little bit. But it's not like you can reshoot whole scenes. You know, mm-hmm. a scene that doesn't work. Maybe you can cut it out. Maybe it's too important, so you can't cut it out, and then it's just there. Mm. But a movie is always a prototype. And that's also part of the reason why there is such high risk. What what I found quite interesting is what you showed on the Mad Invest page, where you can invest, is how the traditional way works and how much um, of the money they take. Mm. uh, Cinemas take 50%, yeah. Of, of, At least. Okay. And then you have the local distributors. Who are they? Let yeah. me tell you from the other way. So I have, as a producer, at least three intermediaries, middlemen, we mm-hmm. call them, uh, until I get to the audience. And obviously, A, this market is super fragmented. You know, the, the, the problem is, 
as we were talking about the Bruno Manson movie before, which was released in October in Germany, when it was last November, it started in Switzerland. So it took almost a year, a year to come out in Germany. And that's like this for, for the whole world, you know, mm -hmm. because these local distributors, they have their own agenda. They can do whatever they want. And the problem is, in, in today's world, when you have a movie that people actually want to see, Mm. then you, you're just dead. You're dead <laughs> because people will pirate it. Yeah. You know, and that's part of the, the thing that happened with Iron Sky 1, you know, because they had, they had all these distributors. And then, you know, the English distributor, he released a DVD one day after he brought the film to the theaters. And as soon as you have that, and you have a ton of people waiting in the US to see the film, you think they will wait? No, somebody will upload the film and, and everybody will download it mm -hmm. because you, you didn't give people the chance to, to see the film. That's a huge problem in today's globalized world with the internet. We have a distribution system that's really stuck in the 20th century. Does it have to do because back in the days the films physically had to be brought to the cinema? Maybe until today sometimes. Well, no, today, I mean, everything is digital. Everything you just download it. Uh... It's DCPs, it's called Digital Cinema Package. So that works fine on mm -hmm. a digital level today. But what does absolutely not work is to be able to have a same-day global release. Why do you mm -hmm. think the, the Hollywood studios do that? If they have a big movie, why do you think they put so much money and time to make a same-day global release? They do it because of piracy. Mm -hmm. That's the only reason. And for a project like Mad Heidi, where we build up a global community, we need to cut out all these middlemen. We need to have a same-day global release. And we can do it today. We can do it digitally. Mm -hmm. And if we manage to build up our community and make Mad Heidi, the webpage, so known, then we can get people on our webpage and watch the movie there. Okay, and, and they have 100%, it, 100% yeah. of the revenue. And mm -hmm. then, you know, after a short while, of course, we will put it on all the other platforms, iTunes, Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the first impact we would like to have on our Mad Heidi page, because that's where we get the highest revenues. And, and I think that's a huge potential now for all independent filmmakers. If you have created your market, People don't really care where they see the film today anymore, you know, and that's a huge possibility, a huge chance that we have the internet for independent people um, to have a similar power like a Hollywood studio. That's quite impressive. From what I understood, first you want to have it only on your website, you get all the money and you have all the people who, which are very engaged. And then later in the second phase, you'll roll them out on different distribution exactly. platforms. Um, Vimeo, they take 10%, iTunes, 30%, and Google Play, 30% again. They take quite a huge cut. It's Do you have experience how much they also add, you know, like how many people they reach with that or... They don't do shit. They don't do anything. They don't do anything. Okay, look, they have to, to provide the technology, they have to provide the servers and stuff, mm -hmm. and of course they have the name, so people actually go on iTunes and, and look for movies yeah. there. And they don't have to enter again the, their, you know, the payment data. Exactly, but it's the same like with the app shop, you know, yeah, that has been under, uh, under yeah. scrutiny for, for a long time, because they just 
they just take too much. Mm -hmm. They take too much of the revenue. And they're big corporations, you know, making billions and billions of profit. And it's just a problem. You know, mm -hmm. the money doesn't go where it should. I also believe you're not a big fan of streaming platforms like Netflix. Well, I mean, I'm impressed by Netflix, you know, I mean, they started sending out DVDs, mailing DVDs, that was their, mm -hmm. their initial business. And of course, it, it's very, very impressive what they have achieved nowadays. But the problem is, if you work for Netflix, you, you lose everything, you have no rights. You don't even mm -hmm. know how many people have seen your movie. You, you, you're just, uh, it's commissioned work then, you know. Um, and I don't think that's very interesting, at least in the long run, uh, mm -hmm. for, for filmmakers. On the other hand, what they have is a full wallet. They can come and go bang and you have a, your movie financed. Mm -hmm. And that's where we come back to what I said before with, with the independent uh, movie industry who has to finance uh, with so many little pieces. You have to 15 to 20 different sources of financing to get your movie financed. And then nowadays you have these big streamers and they come and go back and, and your, your thing is, is there, mm -hmm. you know. And probably some kind of brain drain is going to happen. So talented young filmmakers will be attracted by the possibilities the streamers can give them. On the other hand, they will lose all their rights. And in the long run, I think this is very, very unsatisfying. Artists have been fighting for a long time to participate in the revenue uh, of what they do. Mm -hmm. And obviously with Netflix, it's, it's a one-time payment and you will never see a dime. You know, you're, you're not participating in anything. Oh, really? Is that the, the standard contract? Yes, yes, yes. But I, I assume people who have like a certain power, they, they can still... They will just get more money. Upfront. Yeah. Hmm. But Netflix doesn't tell you how many people have seen your, your movie. That's another thing, you know. Netflix doesn't care how many people see a specific movie. Because they are going for the subscriptions, yeah. you know. Uh, so they just need mm. things that give them high visibility. But the actual number of people watching a specific show, they don't care about that. Mm -hmm. They just need the right mix of content to attract enough people and to, and to retain them, to keep them. Right? Yes, and I, I am pretty sure that this business model they have is not sustainable in the long run. I mean, they have never made profit, uh, Netflix, so, but they always have new investments and that's why they have a very high cash flow. But uh, eventually, almost everybody will have some kind of subscription. Mm -hmm. And then, then you need another Disney subscription and a Swisscom subscription. And, and, and at some point, the market will be uh, full, you know. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they will have to... It, it's very interesting movement. I, I don't know if you have seen that, but in France, they are now having a, a linear TV channel, Netflix, where they just air stuff. Oh, really? <laughs> Going back with, to the old thing. With ads or no ads at no, least? No, no, no ads, but, but I think it's just uh, Netflix shows that come... Oh. And they just, they're just playing like that. Because they also found out that... You know, not everybody always wants to choose. choose. Yeah, you know, that's just a big give hurdle. me something. That's true. That's true. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to choose. It, exactly. <laughs> and then the, with the interface of Netflix, which is mm -hmm. not very handy and stuff. So below the line, I'm very impressed with what Netflix does. Uh, I think it's good because it makes the industry move. Mm -hmm. That's That's the good part about it. And the quality, I mean... 
you could argue that there's never been better quality of shows on TV. I always had the feeling the interesting people go from making movies for the cinema to TV shows because they're getting so good. Well, yeah, I think this is like a wave movement. Uh, you know, at some point the TV shows are really high, the series, and everybody wants to make them. And But that's already going down a little bit again. But certainly there has been a movement away from theatrical movies to streaming content. Mm. And um, Matt Heidi is jumping on that as well. I mean, we will have fan events in, in theaters and stuff, but I think eventually... The, the future for, for theaters is more uh, an event character. That's cool because there are people and you watch the movie together in the theater. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, people will have uh, streaming services all over and that's the way they're going to watch movies. I think that's, that's, that's the sign of the time. And, and it, it was, it was uh, enforced by, by the pandemic now mm -hmm. also. Yeah. There's an interesting project going on for music um, it's called Audius. It's like Spotify, but it's decentralized. So basically, they built the whole thing you know, on a decentralized system. People will listen and then, you know, whoever owns the rights to those tracks will get paid automatically. So it's like really digital first and like uh, crypto native mm -hmm. system. Do you think anything like that will happen for movies? I am dreaming of one thing that unfortunately I cannot do myself because I'm not uh, enough in that area. But what I'm dreaming of is uh, that somebody creates a unique file ID that is written into the public blockchain, which means I could produce 10,000 files of a film and you can only watch it if you own the ID. So if you want to watch this uh, file, uh, it will communicate with the blockchain, ask who is this, and you have to stick in your wallet. And if you want to watch this file, you have to verify your identity. Through uh, something like that, you could create a secondary market, you know, where I have this film, you don't have it, but you would like to see it. I can give it to you mm -hmm. for five bucks. Every trade of the file would participate the, the makers, the original owners of the file. And I, I think that would kind of bring back the physical aspect of DVDs because I have the DVD, you don't. Mm. I can give it to you yeah, and you yeah, can yeah. pass on the file. And, and I think that would be a very, very interesting uh, addition because I think the revenue participation of the artists is something that is one of the most important things in art because you have to see that, you know, when you're a filmmaker, it's hard to make money compared mm -hmm. to other businesses, compared to yeah. the average society. And it, it, eventually you make a film and tons of people see it, but they all see it for free. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> nobody mm -hmm. pays for what you did. You know, you cannot make money with your work and with piracy and all that. And, and since 20 years, you know, this file sharing stuff, it's becoming increasingly difficult. And I think blockchain that could be really a, a game changer there mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. if something like a unique file ID could be created. I mean, blockchain brings digital scarcity. And next week I have an interview with, with one of the digital art markets that sell those mm -hmm. NFT tokens where you kind of own a digital mm -hmm. art piece. And I'm sure the same technology and same thinking could be applied to a movie. But I think that's a good uh, kind of outlook for the future and a good way to end the episode. Thank you so much. Thank Valentin. You. 
Um, do you have a, a place or, or like a message for what people should do, where they can find uh, more about you or about Matt, Heidi? Hey, just check out uh, mattheidi.com or madinvest.co. Uh, you will find it easily if you type it into Google. If you have a question, write us. I think it's really exciting. And if you want to join, welcome. Great. Thank you. If you like this episode, please visit unforkable.cc and sign up for the email list. Help other people to find the show. Rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you very much and see you soon.